Lord, we come once again now to your word, and it is our delight to sit under the ministry of your word from day to day, week to week, and to be ruled by it, to be challenged by it, to be instructed by it, to be encouraged by it. In this we find life because in this book we find you. This book informs our prayers. This book gives us wisdom and is sufficient for every need in this life. But most of all, this book, and especially the Gospels, and especially the Gospel of John, reveals Christ. So we love this book. And we love to study it and think about it and ponder it and obey it and share it. And so we thank you and we praise you for this time and ask you to use it for our sanctification, for our joy, and for we pray it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. John chapter 2. We're ending John chapter 2 this morning. And before we start that, I just want to say that this week as I was studying and, and praying over this message and asking the Lord to use it to speak to my heart and to speak to yours and to change us, it occurred to me once again, I was, I was almost overcome once again by the reality of what a delight it is to have the privilege week after week of just studying the Word of God. It's amazing. It's amazing. Every time I come to the text, it's like opening a treasure chest. It's full of pure gold, and I am shocked and awe every time. Every time I open this book to study it, I'm amazed at what I find. There's just no end to the treasure. There is enough here to make every one of us rich in God. And that's what I long for. And the older I get, the more I love this book. And you know what I love about this book? I don't know if you notice, but I don't give a lot of illustrations from my life or from the culture. I try to do everything in this pulpit from this book. This is where we find God. This is where we find Christ. The more I experience life and interact with the difficulties of the people that I serve, the more convinced I am that God's word is more than sufficient for every need of the soul, bar none. I love this book. And what a joy it is to belong to so gracious a God who would give us his word. Amen? One of the practical issues that regularly arises in my ministry to people, and, and so many of you will resonate with this because you are so busy in other people's lives for the glory of God and the gospel, is um, the issue of assurance of salvation. A lot of people just aren't sure. They struggle with assurance of their salvation. Hardly a month goes by that either Brent or myself or one of our counselors is not faced with someone coming to our door asking Pastor, can you help me? I, I don't know. I just, I just don't have assurance of my salvation, and I want to know. I, I want to get this right. Can you help? 
And one of the things I've observed over the years is that some people who lack assurance of their salvation, they really ought to have it. I mean, because they have it. They have the real thing. It's just they haven't been taught well or they, they misunderstand or, or something has gone wrong in their thinking about salvation and the gospel and it needs to be cleared up. They should have what they don't have. They should have assurance of salvation. On the other hand, there are other people, and this is the hard one because these people aren't asking the questions. There are people who are rock solid, confident that they are children of God, and yet they have every reason to question that. They have every reason to question it. And too often, they're not questioning. I mean, they're so sure, and yet they're lost. The title of my message this morning, as you probably have already noticed, and I hope chuckled out a little bit, is, has Jesus accepted you into his heart? Now, those of you who know me understand that I intended to be a little provocative with that, because I think there's, there's an issue with presenting the gospel in terms of accepting Jesus into your heart. Now, if your definitions are all right... Um, if your definition of heart is right and definition of accept is right and your understanding of where all of that is going is right, then great, that's, that's, that's a fine metaphor for uh, entering into a reconciliation relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, that's fine. But unfortunately, most people we share the gospel with like that don't have any clue and most people who share the gospel like that don't have any better clue. And the question is not, have I accepted Jesus? The question ultimately is this, has Jesus accepted me? Now let me just make this real clear. Um, you already understand this, you may just not know it. Um, and then after I make it clear, probably, the, the sermon will probably be superfluous, but we'll go with it anyway. Think back in the Old Testament times when there were kings. There's some of the greats, King Solomon. Uh, king David. How about King Ahasuerus? I think he was king when, when, um, uh, when not Ruth, but Esther <laughs> comes before the king. Can you imagine walking into the throne room of David or Solomon or Ahasuerus and saying, King, I've been thinking, been mulling this over, giving it a lot of prayer, and I just want you to know, I accept you. I accept you. I've decided I like you, and it's okay for you to pursue a relationship with me. Um, Esther, before she walked in, she said, if I perish, I perish. Oh, God. She had all these people fasting for her, right? Oh, God, I hope that he extends the scepter to me or I'm in big trouble. You just don't waltz in to the throne room of a king and declare that you accept them. Now, there is a sense in which we do accept Jesus as our king in the sense that we acknowledge that he is that and we place ourselves under his rule. But really, the question is still not, do I accept him? But does he accept me? 
So I think that's what this text is about. I think that's what this next text is about. And I'm going to show you why that's what this text is about. But first we're going to stand and read it together. Let's stand out of reverence for the word of God. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Now, when he, that's Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he had done. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. Now, you don't have to be an expert in exegesis to kind of derive from this text, even with a cursory reading, that Jesus was not terribly impressed with the faith of the people who were saying that they believed in him. Does that shock you? Does that make you a little bit uncomfortable? Does it bother you perhaps just a little bit that Jesus doesn't always accept the faith of some who claim to believe in him? Does that sound judgmental? Maybe a little bit unloving? I mean, if someone were to come and say, brother, I believe in you. Do you say, I don't accept that. I don't accept that. I don't believe you. I don't believe you. That seems to be what Jesus is saying. A cursory reading of this passage seems to suggest this is exactly what John is saying. He appears to be suggesting that salvation is not simply about us accepting Jesus, but also about whether or not Jesus accepts those who claim they believe. So let's spend a few minutes kind of digging into this text to see if we can figure this out. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, my outline's a little bit different, uh, only two points. And the reason it's different is because each of these points is put in the form of a question. And so here's question number one. Did these people believe in Jesus? Did they believe in Jesus? Now, let's remember the context here. Jesus has just come to Jerusalem. Uh, You remember the, the preceding context. He's coming in to cleanse the temple. He's there a couple of days perhaps before Passover. Now Passover has come. They're kind of in the middle of the feast. He's been there for a few days since the Passover. But, uh, but the context demonstrates that the last thing we, we heard about Jesus is that he, he made a cord of whips and chased everyone out of the temple, all the oxen and the sheep and the doves and the money changers, because they turned it into a market That place which God designed to be a house of prayer for the nations, a place of worship in the presence of God. Um, The important thing here, when we think about that event, is to ask ourselves this question. How did the people who saw it and heard about it, how did they respond? And we know how the disciples responded, group number one. The disciples responded by concluding Wow, remember Psalm 69? This has got to be a fulfillment of that. Because the Messiah would say, zeal for your house has eaten me up, has consumed me. And that's what they just saw. And they said, boy, we believed he was the Messiah even before now, but if there's any doubt, he's the Messiah. 
They responded in faith. Then there was a second group. The second group was made up of the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, who came to Jesus afterwards, and unlike the disciples who exercised faith in him as Messiah, they were just flaming mad. Angry unbelief. Jesus was kind of moving in on their authority. They were undercutting their lordship, their leadership over the people, their usury of the people. And now John introduces to us a third group. And the disciples, we had this uh, small group, only five disciples so far. And then we have a, maybe a larger group, we don't know, but um, at least a group representing the Sanhedrin, that would be 70. And then we have this other category of people. Now, there was in Jerusalem at the, uh, he was in the Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, and many, 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 many what? Many people, just generic people, random citizens who were there in Jerusalem, <clears throat> who no doubt had heard about what Jesus had done or saw themselves. Maybe they were in the temple at the time. No doubt they heard through the grapevine about him turning water into wine. And they're trying to come up with a decision about him. And John says, he explains, many believed in his name because of the miraculous signs he was performing. They saw the miraculous signs and they believed in his name. The question is, once again, did the people believe in Jesus? And clearly the answer is yes. They believed in Jesus. In fact, John very decisively says this, they believed in his name. That sounds even more specific. You know, if someone were to come to you and and you were to say, hey, are you a Christian? And they were to say, oh, I believe, you would go, okay, maybe I need to ask some more questions. But if they looked at you and they say, are you kidding? I believe in his name. You might think to yourself, wow, I'm not sure exactly what they meant by that, but that sounds like an informed response. It sounds like there's some depth there, some substance there, some meaning there. They've thought about this. They believed in his name. And aside from that, watch this. Go back one chapter. I I neglected to tell the first service this, but if you're any student of of John, if you like to study the book of John or are studying it along with me, then, then you'll notice what he says in 9 through 13. We'll just camp out on verse 12, but remember the true light comes into the world and his own did not receive him. He came to his own, verse 11. Uh, Those who were his own did not receive him, verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who what? Believe in his name. Well, that sounds convincing. They believed in his name. They believed in his name. Um, This really makes it sound like these people in in chapter 2 got the real thing, doesn't it? They had heard about what Jesus did in the temple. They probably heard about him doing the miracle of Cana of Galilee. Many of them actually saw him perform other miracles right there in Jerusalem during this time that the Apostle John just completely leaves out. He assumes you've already read Matthew, Mark,
those other miracles, they looked at all the evidence and they profess, we believe. We believe. It sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds right. It sounds right on target. I mean, aren't these the kind of people that we kind of want to, to, to move in next door to us? These are Christians we could do a little Bible study with? Or people that you would like to work with in your cubicle? Or folks that we would love to have in our church? People who believe in his name. But when, what John wants us to see here is that looks and verbiage can be deceiving. Remember what the Lord said, that is the Lord Jehovah, God. You remember what God said to the prophet Samuel? Back in the day when he was looking for uh, Israel's first king, um, he said this, God said to Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the what? the heart. God looks at the heart. God evaluates the heart. Sin and righteousness are always a matter of the heart. He wants to know what the true condition of your heart is relative to your relationship with God. Not are you religious, but do you know God? Now prepare yourself for this and for the rest of this sermon because you better have your seatbelt on and maybe your crash helmet. Not all faith in Jesus is what it appears to be. Did the people believe in Jesus? Yes. Yes, apparently they did. But here we also have a second question, if you're taking notes, number two. Did Jesus accept their faith? Look at verse 24. But Jesus, for his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. The word but here, at the beginning of verse 24, is an adversative. And John's goal is to establish a stark contrast between the profession of the people and The opposite, Jesus' x-ray examination of their hearts. He knows what's in their hearts. In fact, that's John's main point here. John's main point is that Jesus is omniscient. Jesus knows your heart infinitely better than you know your heart. If you can use the word infinite relative to a finite human heart, his point is this, look at the rest of this, Uh, Verse 24, Jesus did not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning men, for he himself knew what was in man. Okay, so you remember our interpretive key to the book is all the way in the back of, of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, where he says, these things, these signs, I have, I have talked to you about um, so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And now John is saying, understand this. 
He's God. We know he's God because he can look into the human heart and know everything and exactly everything without skipping anything that is there. And now chapter 3, he's going to demonstrate that because the next section is about Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. And he lays out the whole question about salvation and Jesus goes right for his heart. He knows. He knows. But even though this is John's main point, it seems that John was very careful under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to deal with each of these little pericopes, these little sections, these little narratives and explanations about Jesus in such a way that while he's showing us the nature of Christ, he's also revealing to us things that we need to consider about ourselves and in our ministry to one another. And it's obvious here. It's obvious here. Jesus has this, what I call, x-ray vision into your heart. He's God. He's omniscient. He knows everything that can be known, and everything that it exists, has existed, or will exist in the mind of God is knowable. By doing this, he teaches us that though a person's profession of faith is important, the question of a person's salvation doesn't stop there. Just because you say, I believe, that is not the end of the question. Our faith in Christ is not of a genuine and saving quality. Listen, our faith in Christ is not of a genuine and saving quality just because we feel like it is. Just because it is in our own estimation. I was really sincere when I prayed that prayer. I walked that aisle. I mean, that was bold, standing for Christ. And and when I went to that service and I walked that aisle and I prayed that prayer, they were even concerned about my assurance. And so they put a sticker in the back of my Bible. They said, if I ever doubted my salvation... I should look at that sticker because the sticker in the back of my Bible says, on this date, you fill in the date, uh, then you put your name, I, Daniel Kirk, uh, put all of my hope in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, whatever, whatever, signed me, Daniel Kirk, and a witness. And I still remember, I used to, uh, when I went to Word of Life uh, Bible Institute, uh, they were still doing that back then, and you know what? I remember the brother who signed my sticker. The only problem was, one time I really got doubting my salvation, and I looked at the sticker, and it didn't help. It it was a sticker. And then it occurred to me later in life, well, would God say that? Would God say, if you ever doubt your salvation, look unto the sticker, and you will have full assurance. Beloved, that's not biblical. And maybe worse, the most important question is not, what do I think about my faith in Jesus? The most important question is, what does Jesus think about my faith in Jesus? Now, it's not as, as quite as obvious in the English as it is in the Greek, but in the original language here, in verses 23 and 24, there's a very definite and intentional play on words. Uh, You don't have to know Greek, but if you have some Greek tools, you can discern this thing if you're a a pretty 
serious Bible student. And here's the play on words. I want you to notice in verse 23, John says about the people that many of them believed. Now look at verse 24. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part was not, next word, entrusting. Believed, entrusting. Believed, entrusting. They sound like the same word? No, not in English, but in Greek. The word pistos. It's used for believe, and it's used for entrust. It just has a different ending. It's the same root word. And what John is telling us here is that while, in some sense, the people believed in Jesus, Jesus did not believe in them. He had no faith in their faith. That's interesting. That should sit up, make us sit up and take notice. Take another sip of our coffee and, and ask, Lord, help me understand. How is it that can, someone can say they believe and, and yet you say, I don't believe that. This puts a different complexion on the whole issue of salvation, doesn't it? In our day, evangelicals are almost glib about calling people to trust in Jesus or to believe in Jesus or to accept Jesus into their heart. And we need to be so careful with this because if we're not careful, we may convince people to pray a prayer, sign a sticker in the back of their Bible that indicates the date that they place their faith in Jesus and inadvertently give them, watch this, a false assurance. And beloved, let me just tell you, out of my experience as a pastor, false assurance is worse than no assurance at all. Way worse. False assurance is worse than no assurance at all. Woe to us if we give people false assurance. And here's what happens when we do this, when we use vague terminology, when we're trying to help people come to place their faith in Christ, to receive what God has to offer through Jesus, if we do it in a sloppy manner, or if we do it just in the traditional way, God loves you and has a, has a plan for your life. Don't you want that? Or in the VBS Sunday school kind of thing, everybody raise your hand who doesn't want to go to hell and come walk an aisle. I mean, we make things so simple and we lead people to make a decision for Christ, whatever that is, and they don't really even understand the gospel. But they did what you said, and you're an authority in their life, or maybe a spiritual authority in, your, in, in their life, and they, they leave there thinking, wow, I'm a Christian. It's done. It's settled. And maybe it was. But maybe not. We know it wasn't in the lives of these people. And we read this passage, we have to ask, what's wrong with these people's faith? What was it about their faith that Jesus was not willing to accept it? The text clearly says that the people believed in his name. That sounds like genuine faith, doesn't it? And John doesn't accuse them of having no faith at all. 
I mean, they really did believe something about Jesus. In some way, they were even happy to so align themselves to Jesus that they knew they were doing it in, in, in a contrary way to the sentiments of the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders. They knew they were doing what the religious leaders didn't like. In some sense, they were aligning themselves with him. Nevertheless, it seems however heartfelt their faith may have been, it was nevertheless rejected by Christ. I mean, how do we explain that? Well, I want to spend the rest of our time together explaining it. It can be explained by the fact that their faith was rooted in the miracles Jesus performed rather than in the gospel that he offered. The reason their faith was unacceptable to Christ is that their faith was rooted in the miracles Jesus performed rather than the gospel Jesus offered. We see this throughout the book, right? Jesus again and again saying, you're following me not because you believe I'm the Christ, but because I fed you bread. You want my bread. You want the miracles. You want me to to heal the sick. You want me to to give sight to the blind and the lame to walk. You You want me to raise the dead. And he did that twice at least. You want me to conquer Rome. You want me to rescue you. You want me to set up my kingdom here and rule over all of your enemies and chase them all away so we can be one big happy family. That's not why I came. And it's not why I'm doing these miracles. And it's not why I gave you bread out of a lunchbox and fed some 25,000 of you at once. And did that on two different occasions. And calmed the storm. And walked on water. The reason I did these things, Jesus is saying, is to reveal who I am. So that you will receive what I am offering to you, namely, the Messiah. And they would say, no, 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 no. We believe that you are the Messiah. Nobody could do what you do if they weren't the Messiah. And Jesus would say, no, you don't believe that. Because if you believe that, you would obey me. Here's the thing. When Jesus was fighting uphill all the way from from the time he started his ministry, he came out of the water at his baptism to the time he died on the cross. He was fighting uphill all the way to the cross to communicate to people, I have not come as a cosmic vending machine just to give you the things that you want. And I didn't come simply to tell you the things that you want to hear. I am God. I am Lord. And I am the most gracious, merciful Lord you can ever imagine. In fact, God is so infinitely gracious to his sinning people that we cannot even imagine it. We would have never thought of it if we hadn't seen it in God's word. But make no doubt about it. I came to be your Lord. I came to rule your life. 
because you can't do it on your own. You're like sheep without a shepherd, and I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I love you, but I love you enough to be your Lord. And this is a really important concept for us to get, beloved. There is a a kind of faith that resides in the understanding only. It is a faith that gladly assents to the truth that Jesus is Messiah, that he is God or the Son of God, and even that he is God in himself. But many times that that faith is is focused exclusively, exclusively on what Jesus can do for us. Its focus on, is on what can we get out of him. And that was the case here. But these, these people never really considered the fact that Jesus came to be their Lord, their master, the provider of the once for all perfect sacrifice for their sins. Now, granted, not even the disciples got the latter half of that until after the resurrection. He kept saying, I'm going to the cross, and he kept explaining why, but they couldn't understand it because their paradigm for the Messiah was different. Nevertheless, the thing that made the disciples different than these people was they kept ranking themselves under him. You're the master. You're the Lord. It's because you said that we're going to throw our nets on the other side of the boat. It's because you said. Seems foolish to us. It's because you said. They understood what it was like to have a Messiah. They understood that the the king had come to rule not just to give presents. The rest of the people, they just wanted what they could get out of him. And maybe they didn't know that, but they sure demonstrated it by the way they responded to him. All they wanted was what they could get from him. And here's what Jesus is saying all the way through the gospel. You want me to come as a celestial Santa Claus. And I didn't come for that. And the reason I'm doing all of these miracles is to show two things. I am your Lord. And I am your Lamb. I've come to rule you. And I've come to rescue you. If you don't want to be mastered by me, then you are none of mine. And if you will not come to me for forgiveness and reconciliation with God, then you are none of mine. And you can't have one without the other. You can't just have the salvation without the the lordship. I am Lord. Accept it or reject it. And this is the story of John. We go through John and we find some people who said, Oh my word, he is Messiah. And they join themselves to him, and they die for him. Think Stephen. Die for him. Think Peter. Think all the other apostles, save one. You want a demonstration that it's possible to say, I believe in Jesus, and yet be none of his? Nobody walked closer to Jesus than Judas. I mean, you can't get any closer than being one of the twelve. And yet Jesus said, but one of you is a demon. 
one of you is going to betray me. And by the way, there were actually two men who betrayed him. You know who the other was? Peter. You know the difference? Peter repented because he loved Christ. And he so wanted to be ruled by him. He wanted to be his disciple. But not these people. Not the general populace of the day. We know that theirs was not that kind of true faith because of the way they responded to him when he did things that they didn't like. So here we are in John chapter 2. Flip your page, just maybe two pages, and look with me at John chapter 6. And here is Jesus who's uh, dealing with these grumbling people. And mainly the Pharisees here. But he, he flops back and forth from the Pharisees to the Jews in general. And he says a couple of interesting things here that I want to point out kind of in a precursory way. Um, verse 44, they're grumbling about him, about who he is. And, and he says, this is so hope-giving. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. I know that what I'm saying to you, for the most part, is unbelievable. I keep telling you I'm God, and most of you don't believe. But don't, don't sweat that. Don't get all uptight about that. Understand, no, none of you are going to come to me unless the Father draws him. God is at work here. It is by God's grace. And then in case they miss that point, verse 65, he says this, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Here's the deal. Jesus was saying some really, really hard things. And he says something in this passage that just freaks out these people who in chapter 2 said, we believe in his name. Beginning with verse 53, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. That's perseverance. And the living Father, as the living Father sent me, and I live before the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. What's he saying? Listen, you keep missing what I'm saying. And he's speaking in pretty cryptic language here, so it was hard to understand. But here's what he's been saying all along. You don't need my gifts and my miracles. You need me. Get your eyes off my gifts. Get your eyes off the miracles. I only do them so that you will need me, so that you will long for me, so that you will catch it. Internalize me. Eat me. Drink me. I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water. You got to get me inside of you. That means your heart. That means your heart needs to be ruled by me. And rescued by me. Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. Verse 60. There were many of his... What's the next word? 
Say it. Disciples. Who are they? People who said, we believe in his name. He's not referring to the 12 here. We know that because of how the 12 respond here a little later. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they heard him say, eat my flesh and drink my blood. This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? In other words, you're telling us things we don't want to hear. We're done with you. We're done with you. You're not going to set up your throne. You're not going to chase the Romans away. You're going to say weird stuff like this. We're not going to let you rule us. We're done with you. You will not be our Lord. We're done with you. Verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. You know what that is? That's hypocrisy. Sorry, that is um, apostasy. Thank you. Sometimes I need help up here. That's apostasy. It's a turning away. It's saying, I once believed, I don't believe anymore. Well, so many warnings about that in Scripture. And this same John will write his three epistles, I mean, yeah, his, his three um, epistles later, and he will say these words, they went out from us because they were never of us. You say, is that possible? Think Judas. This point, beloved, is nowhere more clearly stated than in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says they believe in Jesus actually has a faith that is acceptable to him. Turn to Matthew 7. Matthew chapter 7. Try to keep up with me now. I want you to look at these texts. Verses 21 through 23. Here's Jesus speaking. We know that because the letters are read. Now, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who, what's the next phrase? Does the will of my Father. You see lordship here? Who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Verse 22, many will say to me, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Your name. We believed in your name. We did miracles in your name. And so their estimation was, Jesus is our Messiah. No, he's not. Jesus says, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I have no faith in your profession of faith. And let's look one more place. Luke, I know I'm going to be pressed for time here on this, but Luke chapter 8. Let's actually go back to chapter 6 first and look at verse 46. And then we'll come back to 8. Luke 6, 46. How about this? 
I just want you to see this as a motif of Jesus all the way through his Gospels. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now he gives the parable of the, um, or the story, the narrative of, of the wise man and the foolish man. Everyone who comes to me, now I'm, I'm going to ask to identify some key words here, so be ready to respond back, okay? I'll ask and you respond. Here we go. Everyone who comes to me and, what's the word? Hears my word and, what's the next phrase? Acts on them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on a rock. And when the flood occurred and the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built, verse 49. But the one who has, what's the word? Heard and has what? Not acted accordingly is like a man who built his house on the ground. Without any foundation, and the torrent burst against that house, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. And here's what we do with that scripture. We say, listen, Jesus' way is better. The house represents your life, and if you want to have a really hard life, then just reject Jesus. If you want to have a better life, then that's Jesus in your heart. It's not what the text is saying. Let me put it in a little different terms. What are, what are the similarities between these two men? Both of them build a house. Yeah, it's their life. Both build a house. Both experienced a storm. Can I tell you something about that storm? This is not just trials and difficulties in this life. This is the judgment of God. One day, you, you, your life is going to be thrown into the fire. And the question is, how's your life going to hold up then? When you get to hear Jesus' real opinion about your faith, in your life. What are the differences between these two men? One built his house on a rock. He sunk his anchors deep. Those piers, like we do in Texas, because the ground shifts and our foundations crack up, they put these piers deep into the ground until they hit solid rock. But the foolish man built his house on the ground. Now, According to Jesus, what are the, what are the defini- what's the definition of that foundation or those piers that dig down deep into solid rock? You know what it is? It's obedience. Watch what he says. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words, verse 47, and acts on them, verse 49. But the one who has heard and has not acted according is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. And judgment happens. And the Lord is going to say, why did you call me Lord, Lord? And you did not obey. You throw your house into the storm of God's fire. Jesus was so concerned about this. He was so concerned that the people that he was speaking to would hear what he's saying. I'm not here to be your celestial butler that you call and say, I need bread, I need more wine. Can somebody come clean the floor? I need more gas for my car, Lord. Give me a bitter house. I have a problem, fix it. I'm sick, make me well. You can do all of that and not even belong to him. All of it. And so Jesus repeatedly is saying, listen to me. Try to understand what I'm saying here. I've not come as a great gift giver. I've come to do these miraculous signs to show you who I am. I am Messiah. I am your Lord. 
and I am your lamb. And so in chapter 8, we pick up this theme again. You see the parable of the seed. Verse 11, now the parable of the seed is this. The seed is the word of God. Okay, that's pretty clear. In other words, the words that Jesus spoke, or the Old Testament and the words that Jesus spoke, the word of God. Those beside the road and those are those who have, who have what's the next word? Heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Verse 13. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they, what's the word? Come on, say it now. Hear, receive the word with joy. And these having no firm root. And they believe for a little while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. Sound like the crowd we're talking about? Verse 14, the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have, what's the word? Heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. Sound like America? And bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed and the good soil, these are the ones who have, what's the word? Heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast. They persevere like the disciples who, after Jesus died, they said, oh no, oh no, but we trust him. And then he left them again. Oh no, what do we do now? What do we do now? But we will obey him. They hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. You see what he's saying? It's not just good enough for you to hear. It's not just good enough for you to hear and say, I believe that. I believe it. Jesus might still be saying, I don't believe you. I don't accept that faith. But here's another parable, the parable of the lamp, verse 16. Now the one after lighting a lamp, um, now no one after lighting a lamp covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. In other words, listen, I, I can see you. I can see what's in your heart for real. So, verse 18, is this not a sobering statement? So, take care how you listen. You realize there's a, there's a right way to listen and a wrong way to listen? The wrong way to listen is saying, okay, I believe that. Well, I don't know. I think he's off on that point just a little bit. Maybe we can talk to him after the service and give him a tape by John MacArthur, and he'll get that fixed. <laughs> None of you have done that for me. Thank you for that. Um, here's the right way. You hear the word of God, and you say, Help me submit to anything you're trying to say to me right now. You are Lord, and I'm your slave, and I love to be your slave. There's nothing that gives me more delight than to be your slave, but I know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I feel it. I don't want to live like that. I don't want to be in rebellion against you. I don't want to join your enemies, even for a moment. You are my Lord. And when that person blows it, you know what they also say? They say, oh God, I've blown it. I confess to you what I did. I acted like your rebel, like your enemy. I was Peter. I was Judas. 
But you're not only my Lord, you're my lamb. And you paid for that sin. Oh, God, forgive me. Forgive me. And help me to start living in a posture under your lordship once again. Take care how you listen. If you're listening just to nitpick, if you're listening just to derive theological knowledge so that you can talk about it and argue about it later, that's not faith. Take care how you listen for whoever has. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. You know what he means by that? You got just a little bit of the real thing, a little bit of a heart that says, God, I want to submit to you. God, I trust you completely that you've reconciled me to God because of the cross, because I desperately needed it, because of my sin past, my sin present, my sin future. Whoever has even a little bit of that, you know what God promises here? I'm going to give you more. I'm going to give you more. But whoever does not have, does not have. You say, is, is that the kind of people he's talking about? Yep. How do I know? Because look at the next phrase. Even what he thinks he has will be taken away from him. That's sobering, isn't it? But we're not done yet. Look at verse 19. And his mother and his brothers came to him, and they were unable to get into him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them this, my mother and my brother are these who hear the word of God and what? Do it. And you see this all the way through John. You see this all the way through the Gospels. I came for two reasons. To be your Lord and to be your Lamb. I came to rule your heart and to reconcile you with God. If you don't want to be ruled or reconciled, then I have nothing for you. And the reason I do the miracles is to show you that I am. This is sobering stuff, isn't it? Although they claim to be believers, they claim to believe, Jesus knew that mere intellectual assent proves nothing. James chapter 2 reveals that even the demons have that kind of faith, except that it causes them to tremble. J.D. Greer wrote a book. It's a, it's a fairly new book, and I'd encourage you to get it. It's called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. <laughs> I was a little offended by the title, and I started reading it, and I thought, wow. I, I think, especially all of you who are doing personal ministry of any sort, and that should be all of you, should get a copy. J.D. Greer explains this. Salvation is not a prayer that you pray in a one-time ceremony and then move on. Rather, salvation is a, watch this, a posture of repentance and faith that you begin in a moment and maintain for a lifetime. You know what salvation is? Salvation is, at first, 
you live your life, I am Lord, everyone else is in my kingdom, I want them to do what I want to do, and if they don't do it, I get mad, I even want God, God, you give me the things that I want, if I don't get them, I'm done with you. When salvation truly comes, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like this. Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anybody, four times as much I will pay them back. God, you are Lord. Jesus, you are Lord. You are Lord. You are Lord. And all I want to do is live for you. I just want to live for you. God, will you accept me? Would you make me one of your disciples? I'm unworthy. But I believe that you are my Lord, and you are my Lamb. And I have no other hope. And Jesus said of Nicodemus, I think laughing and smiling from ear to ear, behold, salvation has come to this house. Beautiful and sobering. And so you see, beloved, that the faith Jesus accepts is a faith of one who relishes the fact that they are a slave of Christ and that Christ is their Lord. It's a faith that clings to the sacrificial work of Christ on the cross as the Lamb of God, as his only hope. And because it is a faith that rests not on what Jesus can do for you, but on who Jesus is for you, it is a faith that Jesus accepts. And when there's no willful, joyful, eager submission to the Word of God, when someone's life is just full of rebellion, full of rebellion against God's Word, and they're claiming they're a Christian, are you in John chapter 3 again? John chapter 2? Flip over there, back to kind of our context, extend it a little bit. Look at the end of chapter 3. Here's John's explanation. Verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. He specifically says Son here. Son of the Father. The Father is the Father of the house. This is the firstborn son. He is the one with all authority. That's the issue. That was the issue when Jesus cleared the temple. I have come as your Messiah. I have come to show you I am God. I am the Son of God. And the Pharisees kept getting it because they kept trying to stone him. But they rejected his message, the gospel. But not everybody rejected his message. Not everybody rejected his message. I want you to turn to one more place, still in the book of John, last chapter, last narrative before the end of the book, or at least before John's pronounced end. And then, like so many many preachers do, like me, you get to the end, you land the plane, you finish the sermon, and then you get back up to the pulpit and add one more chapter. John does that, but here's his first ending of, of the flight here in John chapter 20. Okay, so let's, let's think about context again. Whole book, Jesus is saying, 
I've come to be your God. I've come to be your Lord. And all the way through the book, you have people saying, that's crazy. Others were saying, they started out saying, look at the miracles he'd done. He must be the Messiah. Oh, but he's not giving us what we want. We're done with him too. And then there were some who in the end confessed, he is all that he claimed to be. And you know who one of them was? Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Unless I see the nail prints in his hands and can put my finger in the nail prints of his hands, unless I see the nail prints in his feet and the scar in his side and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Sounds like he's with everybody else, right? I just find it fascinating and instructive and confirming that we're right on track with this understanding of John because this is how John ends his gospel. The very last thing he tells us about is Thomas. And he says this. Verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. He wasn't there uh, the previous Sunday evening. That's what he gets for skipping Sunday evening service. And Thomas was with them, and Jesus came, and the doors having been shut, and stood there in the midst, and he said, Peace be to you. And he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger. You see my hands? And reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now notice Thomas's answer. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and That's the end of the book. That's the end of the message. This is where it was leading all along. We know that because the next thing John says is, therefore many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples and are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So here's the gospel. Will you trust Christ to be your Lord and your Lamb? Will you trust Christ to rule your life? Will you surrender your rulership of your own heart and your life to the joy of being ruled by Christ through his word? And will you trust him to be your once-for-all perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world? Will you trust him to redeem you and reconcile you with God by his blood and by his righteousness as your only hope? Will you trust him as your Lord and as your Lamb? That's easy enough to understand, isn't it? And here's what I'm saying with regard to assurance. Not insurance. <laughs> assurance. And some of you, you know Christ. You belong to him. But you've got this stuff all jumbled in your mind. Did I believe enough? Did I say the right thing? Did I pray the right prayer? Was I sincere enough? Listen, none of that matters. The question is, right now, 
right now, today, who are you trusting in to be your Lord and to be your Lamb? And if someone like Jesus were to come along and examine your life, would he look at your life and say, here's here's a true believer indeed. This is one who submits to my word. He's the wise man who built his house upon the rock. He has sunk his roots deeply into the rock of Jesus Christ through obedience, as demonstrated by his obedience. I understand it's all by grace through faith. I get that. I love what John Piper explains in his book, Future Grace. It is a grace that is both free and costly. It is a grace that God puts conditions on and then he fulfills those conditions. You will not come to Christ unless you believe, but even your faith is a gift. And so I'm saying to you, if you are living in a posture of submission to his lordship and to his role as the sacrificial lamb in your life, then you should have every confidence that you are a child of God, even though you still struggle with sin. That's what 1 John 1 is all about. We have an advocate with the Father. Those who truly belong to him have an advocate with the Father. He is your lamb. He is your high priest, too, and all of that, but that doesn't alliterate very well. He is your Lord, and he is your lamb. If you're living with that posture, in that posture before him, then you belong to him. It's not perfection. It's direction. But the other side is true as well. And people who don't ever question their salvation probably really need to. If your hope is based on the fact that you believe Jesus is the Son of God and you pray to prayer to tell him so, but you're not living in a posture of repentance and faith, if you tolerate unrepentant sin in your life and hardly ever wonder if God cares about any of that, then by the authority of God's word, I must warn you, beware. Beware. The Lord Jesus knows the true condition of your heart. You will not escape the all-seeing eyes of this glorious Son of God. And though you may believe in him, he may not believe in you. Yours is likely a faith that he will not accept. If you think you may be in the latter category, then I plead with you to turn from your selfish and shallow faith and turn to Christ in repentance and faith in his lordship and in his role as the Lamb of God over your life. Confess the depths of your sin and your need for what he accomplished for you on the cross. Turn over the reins of your life to him and joyfully submit to him as Lord of your life until he comes or until he calls you home. This, beloved, is the kind of faith 
that Jesus accepts. Not all faith in Jesus is true saving faith. And John Calvin once wrote, none are true disciples of Christ but those whom he approves. Let's pray. And Father, we praise you for this warning and for the joy and the hope that it brings those who belong to you. Oh, Father, we all feel the pangs of, of guilt and shame when we sin. And yet, Lord, our heart's desire is to be ruled by you. We know how much better it is to be ruled by you. Without you, we are like sheep without a shepherd. But you are the shepherd of our souls. You are the good shepherd. You are the great shepherd. And oh, Father, we trust you. And so I pray that you would give confidence. May your spirit testify with their spirit right now that they are children of God. On the other hand, Father, I pray for anyone here who is determining right now that perhaps their faith has been somewhat of a sham. Maybe they didn't intend it for, for that to be the case. They've just been misinformed about the scriptures. Well, Father, move in their hearts. Grant them repentance and faith. Help them to turn to Christ and to submit to him completely, fully, and turn to him not just today, but every day of the rest of their life as their spotless, guiltless, sacrificial lamb. These things we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.